Thank you for the download, the stream, hopefully the subscription to Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Every little bit helps. I thank you for that, and it's time to thank you in person. October 24th is the date. New York City Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast is back on Tuesday night, October 24th, and I'm bringing one of my friends with me. That's what I'm doing with these live shows. Anybody that's been to the live shows knows what a spectacular, fun night it is. Now, I'm going to bring with me some of my favorite guests, some of the guests that have made the biggest impact on you guys. And this time, uh, it's no exception to any of that. Bully Ray, FKA Bubba Ray Dudley, is going to be my guest at the live Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast at the Highline Ballroom. Get your tickets now at HighlineBallroom.com. Tickets are going fast, so make sure you get them now. Bully Ray is going to be with me for the whole night. Interview, Q&A, he's going to be there for the meet and greet, everything. Get your tickets, and those VIP tickets are going the quickest at HighlineBallroom.com. I'm going to have other surprises on that show. I'm going to have prizes for you in the audience that you're only going to be able to get there. It's going to be a spectacular night at the Highline Ballroom, October 24th. HighlineBallroom.com for tickets, and the podcast, ladies and gentlemen, starts now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Oh, what a show I've got for you today. What a show, what a show. Thank you all for being a part of it, as always. It's Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. The, uh, I was going to say the only podcast. It's not the only podcast. It's the very best podcast done by a wrestling fan for wrestling fans. We still like wrestling if we listen to Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. And I know sometimes it's more difficult than others. I know sometimes you guys watch WWE or Ring of Honor or New Japan, whatever it is. And you say, Sam, help this make sense to me. I want to love wrestling. Explain to me why I'm still watching. And sometimes that's what we're about. Other times we're just about celebrating the medium that is sports entertainment, pro wrestling, whatever you want to call it. And it's going to be a very, very fun show. It's been a fun week. Um, I was at Ringside Collectibles over this week. Ringside Collectibles is like uh, the best wrestling figure website there is. They didn't have the Virgil figure yet. I wasn't able to get Virgil just yet, but uh, I was able to check out some of the new Mattel retro figures, the the ones that look like Hasbro's. As a, as a as a figure collector for a long time, it is awesome that Mattel is doing this line of modern day WWE guys in the style of Hasbro figures. Um, and I did some videos for Ringside Collectibles. I'm assuming they'll come out at some point. You'll see them when they do. Speaking of videos, oh poor. Poor Impact Wrestling, you guys do not cut them a break. You know, I tweeted out yesterday uh, a preview to the video because I posted the video on YouTube of the Bobby, Bobby Lashley interview that was on the podcast a couple weeks ago, which I just loved. And anybody that's heard that interview loves it. And and that's one of those things that, like, I think because Bobby's been gone from WWE for so long, uh, a lot of the mainstream fans don't remember how impactful he was in WWE and don't remember how much there is to talk to him about that time but there really really is and I found it to be one of the most interesting interviews that I've done for the podcast but I posted the preview on Twitter and the clip that I posted it was just like a a, a one minute clip of Bobby talking about returning to WWE and how he wants to fight Roman Reigns and like Impact tweeted it and for Impact here's the thing 
Impact, I, I saw immediately on my app mentions, they got all kinds of flack. Why are you tweeting this? Don't tweet this. He's talking about leaving the company. And then poor Bobby started getting flack for talking about it. And it's like, let's not kid ourselves. I don't think that anybody who's in Impact right now needs to pretend that it's as big or as important as WWE is. You, you don't, like, when, when people leave Ring of Honor for WWE, or even New Japan, when people leave New Japan for WWE, nobody sits there and goes, oh my God, what did they do? They had such a good gig in New Japan. They go, okay, it could go well, it could go poorly, but this is what people do. It's looked at as a graduation of sorts. When Nakamura left New Japan and he was as big a star as you could be in New Japan, nobody sat there and said, I wonder why he's going to WWE. When AJ Styles left at the same time, nobody was like, why is he doing that? That doesn't make any sense. I had no idea AJ Styles wanted to go to WWE. On some level, even if they're the Young Bucks, Every professional wrestler wants to be wrestling for WWE on some level. Now, for guys like the Young Bucks right now, and even Kenny Omega, financially, they have to figure out if it makes sense. The Young Bucks are making just a ridiculous amount of money off their merchandise, mainly. You know, they're making a ton of money off gigs, I'm sure, and they have a great gig with Ring of Honor and New Japan and all that. But they're making just insane, insane money off their merchandise, and they're getting to do it independently, which doing things independently without a big company inherently has a value. So I'm not sitting here and saying that like any any wrestler, if given the opportunity, would immediately pick up and leave whatever they're doing for whatever the WWE offered them. That's not true. But the WWE is always going to be the biggest player in the game. So the idea that Bobby Lashley, you can't kill TNA too badly for Bobby Lashley wanting to go back to WWE because of course he wants to go. Every single person who's in Impact right now on some level wants to be in WWE, okay? I Like Mike Bennett, I'm sorry, Mike Kanellis. Mike Kanellis is in WWE right now, right? Doing nothing. I mean losing to Bobby Lashley in, in a minute and a half. And that's been the conversation about him. Why has it been that he and Maria have gone to WWE and done nothing? But in this conversation of it's a shame that nothing is happening with them in WWE, nobody is advocating for Maria and Mike to have never signed with WWE. At no point have they said, you know, they probably shouldn't have gone to WWE because everybody should go to WWE. At some point, if the deal's right, for the Young Bucks, it would be a little bit different. For Kenny Omega, it would be a little bit different. For for Okada, it would be a little bit different. But, on you know, WWE would probably realize the contributions at some point those guys could potentially make and make them the right deal. But, I mean, I get where the criticism is. I'm trying to, I'm trying to put a positive spin on it. To me, I decided, and, and, and you guys who are fans of the show should maybe look at it the same way I do. Let's put a positive spin on it. Let's add uh, some ego to Sam Roberts and Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Let's say that regardless of what Bobby Lashley was talking about, hey, there's a TNA super, I mean, an Impact Wrestling superstar on Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Let's give him some shine for that. That's a big deal, right? Now, I don't know if that's really how they feel, but that's how I'm going to sell it to myself. That's how I'm going to make it like, you know what? I'm sure that Impact didn't just retweet the tweet without ever watching the video. No, that's ridiculous. I'm sure they watched the video and they said, look, I know he's not necessarily talking about Impact Wrestling in that clip, 
Matter of fact, he's talking about how much he wants to be wrestling for WWE in that clip. But the the intrinsic value of Bobby Lashley even being associated with Sam Roberts is so high that we at Impact Wrestling have to make sure that our audience sees what a mainstream celebrity we have in Bobby Lashley. That's what they must have been thinking. All these questions. TNA, what are you thinking posting this clip? Well, they're thinking Sam Roberts is a big, big deal and our talent is sitting next to him. Let's let the world know that that's what's happening. That's the way I'm looking at it and that's the way you all should look at it. Why else would you listen to this podcast? Just hear some some little squirt spouting off his opinions about play fighting? No. To listen to the last professional broadcaster wax philosophical and break down what's going on in the world of pro wrestling and sports entertainment. And let's be honest, a lot of my uh, 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 analysis ends up being right. So there is a value to it. But yeah, don't don't insult TNA too badly for retweeting that tweet. I like it when people retweet my stuff. I like it when when organizations promote me. I like that. (laughs) I was like, hey, don't give Impact a hard time. They just retweeted my tweet. But whatever. Um, We got another big interview this week. It's going to be a good one. By the way, a lot to talk about in uh, State of Wrestling this week. We'll get to uh, the lead up to Hell in a Cell, what happened on Raw and SmackDown. I'm going to announce the winners of the contest. for the Charlotte books, the Charlotte and Ric Flair signed books. Also, I'm going to let you know how you can get more signed books, okay? I'm giving away two of those signed books today. The contest is over. However, I think I'm being sent two more signed Second Nature books that are autographed by Ric Flair and Charlotte, and I'll let you know how you can get those books in the bridge segment. Before we get to the bridge... We get to our interview this week, and it's the hitman himself, Bret Hart. Uh, I was thrilled. Uh, uh, One of my uh, buddies, Brian, from House of Glory Wrestling, and House of Glory is a great indie promotion here in New York. There's not that many. A lot of indie promotions in New Jersey, but not too many in New York. House of Glory runs a lot of shows here in New York, uh, and they're, they're a very professional organization. They have their stuff together, which is not something you can say about most indie promotions. And when they promote something... It's going to come true. Uh, Brian came to me and said, hey, man, would you be interested in talking to Brett the Hitman Hart? I said, Brian, bring that guy in here. Yes. You know, just the fact that Brett the Hitman Hart is associated with House of Glory will tell you what kind of professional organization they are. But Brett Hart came in, uh, and it was cool. We had a lot to talk about. Um, he definitely spouted his opinions on a bunch of different stuff, which uh, you'll hear, and maybe we'll discuss a little bit after the interview. Uh, and he was there with his son, Blade. Now, anybody that's watched Wrestling With Shadows, which is an amazing documentary, if you have not seen Wrestling With Shadows, Hitman Heart Wrestling With Shadows, maybe you should pause this podcast and go watch the movie right now. If you're driving, then keep listening to the podcast, but make a mental note. And when you get home, find Wrestling With Shadows. I don't know exactly where it's available. It is available, though. You can get it. Um, I know for a while it was on Netflix. I'm not sure that it's still on Netflix, but it is on various streaming services. And if you have to buy it, if you have to buy it off iTunes, I don't even know if it's on iTunes, but if you have to buy it, you probably check right now. If you have to buy it, buy it because it's that good. It's, it's probably my favorite pro wrestling documentary. You know, it's probably it's, and, and there've been a bunch, but it's probably the best one. Um, and, and and what it is, it's, it's, it's it was shot in 1997, and it follows 
Bret Hart during his last year in WWE. Obviously, they didn't know it was going to be his last year because of the Montreal Screwjob and everything, but they had... Uh, uh, they had cameras back there uh, and, and everything. And they had every every aspect of what happened was recorded. There were hidden microphones in Bret Hart's meeting with Vince McMahon before Survivor Series 1997, before the Montreal Screwjob. You get to hear pieces of this conversation. You get to see bits of the aftermath. You get to see Bret's wife at the time yelling at Shawn Michaels and Hunter. You get to see Vince McMahon stumbling out of Bret Hart's locker room after getting punched by him. You get to hear Bret's feelings right away after the match and 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 before the match and how it got there. It's really, really a fascinating documentary, so I would check it out. Um, but the reason that I bring it up is because Blade is all over the thing. He's a little kid at the time. It's 97, and he's just running around with his dad, you know, playing with a bunch of the WWE superstars and uh, uh, and just kind of being there. And what I really like about this interview is we get a little bit of Blade's perspective on what happened during that time because nobody's really heard from him since then. He was around the entire scenario of the Montreal Screwjob and as many perspectives as we've heard on Montreal. And you can go back. I mean, my favorite one that I've done is my conversation with JR, which is on YouTube, which is you know, amazing to me if you're interested in the Montreal stuff. But I got to get uh, Blade Hart's perspective on it and what it was like as a little kid, as all that was going on, uh, as well as a lot from Brett the Hitman Hart. So here he is, Brett the Hitman Hart, my guest this week on Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. And now, the Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast interview. So this, uh, this feels like a long time coming for me, but... In the studio for the first time. I mean, we've spoken once before, but it was years ago, and it was for like 10 minutes at a Comic-Con. But Brett the Hitman Hart, the legendary Brett the Hitman Hart is here. How's it going, man? Things are good. Everything's Things are good. good. Having a good summer. Yeah. I think uh, we spoke once before for about <clears throat> 10 minutes at a Comic-Con, and it was when your action figure was coming out. And I think that was the like the new Mattel thing. And I think that was... The first time that was, if I remember right, the introduction to you kind of starting to get back into that WWE world. Uh, probably. I mean, it was, I'm guessing, trying to picture, I've done a lot of interviews, so it's hard to remember which ones. Yeah, say, absolutely. I um, I do recall being around here when around the time the DVD, did, they did a sort of a peacemaking DVD that right. with me that that opened a lot of doors and kind of is that what it did because that that was that's what I was wondering because you've been a guy who's who even years ago I mean while you were still wrestling would talk about how important your legacy was to you and how it was important that you know this career that you were building had something to show for it when it was done yeah I never wanted to look back on my career like it was like it was a waste of time or right none of it mattered and or that I was irrelevant. I, I get offended by anything like that. I mean, I've always been really, I always thought when I did the work, like I did the matches, whether it was the SummerSlam or WrestleManias or whatever, or even Raw, like when I had my match, especially when knowing that it was going to be filmed and sort of it's, it's a marker for life now, like you, nobody erased or shouldn't anyway, like they should last forever, your matches. So you weren't like a day-to-day -day guy. You were a guy who, especially like a pay-per-view or even a TV in your mind, it was like, this isn't a match for tonight. This is a match that is going to live forever, and I want people... Yeah, I want to raise the bar. I want to have the best match ever tonight, like every night, like I'm, especially for a big one. Yeah. Like an Ironman match or Wembley or... It's like 
Even SummerSlam '91. I want to raise the bar. I want to. I want to do so well that when someone else is in the same shoes about 10, 20 years from now or hundred years from now, that they're not going to be able to top what I did today. And, yeah. Are you? And do, I stand by my my matches. How do you feel about your legacy and how it's how it's maintained? Like now that you can actually look at your career as a package, is it is it what you wanted it to be? I think so. I think you know you always. You know, you don't really know how to um, gauge those kind of things. But for me, I mean, uh, you know, I've stopped wrestling now since um, my last match was 99. Right. So it's quite a long time now. Mm -hmm. Most people that are, um, you know, sort of analysts or experts on wrestling will still throw my name around as in the top five wrestlers of of any era. Yeah. uh, you know, so I, I I think the fact that I took so much pride in my work was right, like it was good, I did, and it pays off down the road. And I think, you know, I know a lot of people today, especially now with the network, the network has been like a huge blessing for for people that lost out on it or like they can go back and watch any match or any pay-per-view. Yeah, because, I mean, you talk about like, you know, everybody talks about the SummerSlams or the WrestleManias, but the matches like like the match with the with the one two three kid on an episode of Raw or those things, now they also have this opportunity to really last forever. You can find the episode and watch it in the context of the episode. <clears throat> yeah, so I think in that sense, I think I'm I get all the credit that I was always hoping for. I think a lot of people <clears throat> still remember my my work and my time period, my era. Yeah. As a, as a really good time for wrestling, and uh, I think it was too. I think I, I changed. I changed the industry a lot, and the, the way the wrestling is today. If you look at the, where wrestling's gone, say compared to where it was in 1988, yeah, <clears throat> it was not all what it is today. I mean, 1988, it was all about butt muscles and how big you were and how big your arms were, and guys like Warlord, yeah, and Hulk Hogan, and Warrior, and the Bulldogs, and. Everything was about how jacked up you could look in the ring and how, like, ridiculously, um, obscenely ripped with muscles you could be. Yeah. And if you really look back on those days, like Warrior and Hogan and whatnot, the wrestling wasn't so good. Like, you can watch well, the, you watch uh, the Hulk Hogan's five greatest matches, and they're all the same. His work is the same. His performance levels are very limited. The promos are the same. It was all, and that, it was kind of like that. A lot of guys were doing the... The same old stuff every night, and uh, I changed that. I think it feels like I think when you look back at that era, and you can even get into the early '90s with it, because even when you win your first WWF championship in '92, that was a shock to fans because a wrestler like you didn't wasn't really in the WWF title picture. Like that was long before any talks. That was a huge long shot. Yeah, yeah. You know, what, it if, wasn't if, an athletic. If they'd even had a few months, if they told me like in June, like, "Hey, we're gonna put the belt on you at SummerSlam or mm-hmm. whatever it was," you know, I would have got knifed in the back, and had that idea would have been shot down by so many other wrestlers and so many other people say, "Like, you could never do that. Don't put down Bret Hart. He's the one." You know, and they would have killed that idea. But the only reason I think I got the belt was Vince. Took a big chance, uh, made a kind of a, we were just talking about how Vince sometimes makes rash decisions and goes in a completely different direction. And that's what, that's what he did. On that day. On some, maybe the day before or a couple of days before, but I never had any warning. Like when I showed up in Saskatoon the day I won the world title for the first time, I had no idea that that's what it was going to be or that that I would win. How does somebody like you work under those 
circumstances because you're a guy who like obviously cares about the long term and everything is like even even you're having these matches and you know you're in your late 20s and early 30s and most people at that age are thinking about what's happening right now you're already thinking about legacy and career and lifetime and to have that you have to work in these conditions where stuff does it just changes on a whim it's not there's not always this long-term vision that the, you the performer has well, there's no, there was never any guarantees about anything, and uh, I, all I did was survive. Yeah, you know, like I just wanted to always hang on to my job, survive. But in doing that and surviving and sort of just doing whatever they tell you to do to the best of your ability, which is what I kind of did all the time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> At the same time, you see your peers and some of the people that are with you or started out with you that are starting to get pushes and starting to become guys like you see guys like Rick Rude or Kurt Hanning or. They're all like my era, you right. know, and they're all getting their chances. Right. And so you got to be patient, and it's like, okay, well, they're going to take a look at me pretty soon. I'm working my ass off, and I'm starting to really kind of turn heads as far as fans. Like, I can feel it, and hopefully they'll start feeling it too. And in my case, um, I think there was a real, they were really slow to kind of get behind the Bret Hart train. Mm -hmm. It took a long time, uh, but when Vince finally did get behind the train, uh, the fans, all those years of the fans have been sort of wanting them to do something with me and give them, they should do something with Bret Hart. And yeah. Bret Hart. And I remember lots of, um, like I remember the agent, Chief J Strongbow, always coming back every night and going, I don't know why they don't do anything with you. You're the hottest, you know, and he'd always praise me. And, and that was in the early days, like 85, 87 and stuff wow. like that. And it's like, so I kept kind of staying in there, but I didn't get my chances. But when I did, I, um, I made the most of it. I, I didn't, you know, I think another big part about my success or the fact that they picked me or singled me out to go, okay, let's go with this guy, is I was really reliable. I mean, I never missed a shot. I never, never, I never got hurt. I never hurt anybody. I was really safe. I was always a total pro. And I had a lot of, um, like, whatever I wanted, like, I could come up with a lot of ideas for a lot of, a lot of, I had my own input in a lot of my matches. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like anybody come back and telling me how to have a great match. I'd go out there and give them a great match when they didn't expect it. Yeah. And um, again, I worked really hard and I, I grew up in the, in the wrestling business. So I had a lot of background. I had a lot of education in wrestling. I mean, when I worked for my father, I mean, I could, I could run the whole show. I could give the first match, the second match, the 10th match. I give everyone their finishes make sure everyone's matches were under a certain time. And I, I mean, I was a good organized uh, guy from the business. I, I knew the business upside down. Did you ever think about, obviously in later years, because you weren't doing anything with them for a long time, but uh, sliding into a role of like an agent or a producer or something like that over at WWE? Because that seems <clears> would, like a I valuable like, skill set. I, I, I hesitated on that for a long time. It was about four years ago I went to them and, and I, I made kind of, threw the ball at him, threw the pitch, pitch made that pitch. Then mm -hmm. I'd like to be part of the, uh, you know, give, giving them ideas and help with the, uh, the, the, the writing of the show or the creating of the matches and the, how the storylines could go and stuff. Because I think I would have been really good for them. Yeah. But, you know, I sort of made the offer, and the way it came back to me is I remember it was like, well, what about the schedule? Right. And it's like, well, I don't want to be on the road every day, but I, don't, I could fly in for TV, says what I think I left. I said, just come in right. for TV, so the day before. Right. And even doing, you know, they split the brands coming in on a Monday I or a Tuesday. Like, I made the offer, and they're like, thank me for it. It was Vince and Triple H, and it's like I just went home. And would you, would you, 
make the move to Orlando and try to do something in that performance center? Or are you more interested in the TV um, part of it? It could be figured. It could be. It could be worked out. If uh, I mean, it's not impossible. I mean, I could just go anywhere. Sometimes it's like a change of scenery might be fun, but I'm. I'm also very happy where I'm at. Right. So I got a beautiful house and a home and a life that I don't really, you know, if you've, as an example, we said, hey, I'll just work Monday night Raws and be there for that. Yeah. Sounds good for me, but realistically, it's like, um, you know, they maybe they need more. Like, yeah. I think they look at their agents, whether it's Mike Rotundo or Arn Anderson or whoever these people are. They're seven days a week. They're on the road all the time. Yeah. There's a certain, that's what they want, that kind of commitment and that kind of Consistency. dedication. Consistency. I don't really have that, and I understand. So maybe that's why I didn't get the calls. That I can. I want to be a helper, but I don't want to be a, I don't want to give my life away to do right. it. Right. Almost like a consultant type But I know role. that I could, I'll give you an example, and it's, I want to mention it because it's something that um, has come up a few times, but it's like, I remember showing up at, um, the WrestleMania, I think it was the one in uh, Phoenix. Mm-hmm. I think it was it like Brock 20... Lesnar and Triple H wrestled. On, oh uh, yeah, yeah, that was uh, that might was that New York? Uh, I think it was Phoenix. Okay, I'm guessing. I might be wrong. But okay. I, just know, I remember when when Triple H fought uh, Brock Brock Lesnar. Uh-huh. I remember thinking, I had so many ideas for stuff they could do in their match. Yeah. And I can remember I could see them talking and working out their match. And I remember going, I should go over and just say, hey, I got a couple of ideas. And and I remember, I've, and I talked to them, I said, no, nah, it's not my place to do that. So I didn't do it. But then I watched the match. And it was, and it's, I think it's famous now, my quote about being a four out of 10. Um, but it was a four out of 10 match. It wasn't nothing special. It wasn't anything, anything that I didn't predict in my mind before I thought, like, this is what they're going to do. And I remember thinking, you know, I could have made that match really awesome. Like yeah. I could have really given them a couple of little things that would just take that match up a couple of notches and make it different than any match that they either one has ever had. And so I know that I there's a there's a potential there to give pass on some good, good right. Ideas there's a there's a help. role for you. It could be yeah. yeah. I, and I, I regretted that I didn't do it. And I think a lot of my criticisms of uh, that match uh, are sort of. Um, misunderstood or it's like me sort of um trying to tear down triple h or get old shots in on him and it's not wasn't that's what it was that was not what i was trying to say right what i was trying to say is i could have made that match better i could really like i'll give you an example and it's a long sort of roundabout way of talking about it but like i remember in uh when i had the iron match with Shawn michaels right and we had so much thought into the match as it was and we only we only saw each other the day of the show and if I if I could say something about that match too, like I was talking about it the other day, that's the only reason I bring it up because that match, I was twelve years old when that match happened. It was WrestleMania twelve, and as a twelve year old, I was thinking to myself when it was pitched, I, even at, I was like, I, I don't know anything about an hour long wrestling match. Like I'm not going. This is going to be boring. I'm twelve. You know, I got a short attention span, and I said this the other day that 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 was the match that like click this thing on in my brain as to, oh, like I like wrestling matches because I sat there for the whole hour and it was this thing that really hadn't been done on WWF at the time, television before. And and it, it honestly made me watch in a whole different way and appreciate things on a whole different level. Well, you know, I, I like building the, an, Iron, an Iron Man match in the time and all the, all the falls, there turned out to only be one, of course. But yeah. 
you know, there's a lot of thought that got to go into all that. And uh, there's, I've wrestled a lot of hour matches. And hour matches are hard because you can, they start to drag. After about, like once there's like around the 10 minute mark, people start going, oh, I hope these guys aren't going to go an hour. And it's, <laughs> right. and, it's, and it's like, yeah, we're going an hour. Right. Nobody knows it till it's the, about the 45 minute mark when they go, okay, yeah, they are going an hour. Yeah. And so they're hard and hard to keep everyone's attention. And I remember in that match, I remember like when we had the whole match figured out, it was like I was worried about losing the fans, losing their attention. Like there was a, I remember like sort of figuring it all out and said, we, we kind of need something like from the 15 minute mark to the 25 or 30 minute. That's where you got to keep, that's where you lose them is that close, when you get around 30 minutes. And if you, depending on whether you used all your best stuff up or, you know, you're saving your best stuff for that other half of the match, mm -hmm. there's a part there where you can lose the whole interest of that whole audience where they just, uh, like, they feel like, oh, shit, it's an hour match. This yeah. Be a, I already can know the rest of it without even watching kind of thing. But Pat Patterson came up with that idea with uh, Tony Chimo with the kick on the floor. Where right. Where he kicked the timekeeper and uh, they took him out in a stretcher. Yeah. I've always said that is... That is an, as a one example is what Triple H and Brock Lesnar needed. They needed something just a little different off the beaten path that hadn't been done every night or wasn't him doing the pedigree on a table for the billionth time. Right. Something that was out of the ordinary. Like people go, what the heck's happening? They kick the timekeeper and he's out cold and they take him out in a stretcher. But that little distraction of like that, that whole spot took about three, four minutes by the time we got him out of there and we got back in the ring, kind of got back to the story. But I always thought that got us over the hump. If you watch that match back, sure, that's really that interesting. got us over the hump of that boring part where they lose interest. Yeah. And we kept their interest and then we had them the rest of the match. But it's like, a, it's a small little thing, but. Yeah. And you, um, you see that little thing you and you're like, you go, this I'm is different. Remember that. Yeah. And I remembered something like that's what Triple H and Brock Lesnar needed. Something like that. It didn't have to be the exact spot, but something that's a little that nobody expected. Yeah. And I know if I sat down with the three of them, the three of us, mm -hmm. we'd come up with something like that pretty quick that would have made that match just so much better. And that's why I say it was a four to 10 because it was, there's no imagination, nothing special. It's WrestleMania. Right. If you can't go to WrestleMania, any wrestler, and do one move or one idea that is different or that you've never done before, or let's try this tonight, even if it fails, even if it doesn't work, it's still... You know, you got to give props to these guys that come up with new stuff or try new stuff. Like I can remember when I fought uh, Kurt Henning here in uh, New York when right. he won the Intercontinental title. We had some spot where we were going to try to climb up the turnbuckle. Mm -hmm. And if you remember, we tried, and I think it was we were going to be fighting at the top of the turnbuckle. And I can't remember what happened, but, and I think we were going to suplex him in the ring. I think I was going to suplex him into the, back into the ring or something. But I remember when we did it, it didn't really work so well. And we ended up sort of falling in the ring. But, you know, we never lost anybody's interest in trying to do the spot. But we, the fact that we brought it to the show, like right. we brought an idea that and maybe it'll work, maybe it'll help. In the end, it didn't do that much, didn't hurt the match. But you don't, you got to at least appreciate guys that are going to try, try new things, try something, even if it fails. Right. As opposed to, you know, so many wrestlers that just do the same thing every single night. I mean, I have a hard time with today's wrestlers. Nobody sells anything. Nobody tells a story. I prefer to watch wrestling where people sell and it's easier. And the the pace, like everyone, everyone's high spot monkeys today. I mean, I, I haven't. 
So you're not a you're not a big fan of the stuff that's going on in like New Japan, for instance, right now. Well, I I can't say I'm fresh on it. I'm not. I'm but that's much, where you see a lot of that sort of fast pace, high spot, high spot, multi person. I, like, I like new stuff, and I, I see a lot of like uh, with um, some some of the New Japan and some of the guys from there. Mm-hmm. You see new stuff, and you like it. I appreciate that, and I always applaud the guys that bring new stuff. But Japan, uh, probably the same thing where nobody sells, and you know it's. It's so much easier, and it's so much fun. It's a much more fun story to watch people actually sell. Do you think part of it, and you were there as this was all happening, is that now there are so many big matches every single day. Every TV has the big pay per view match, and by the time you get to the pay per view, you've like there, I don't remember a pay per view where you haven't seen the match before on one Raw or SmackDown or another. Like the the style has completely changed, whereas you remember. You know, in, in in the early 90s and, and before, it was this thing where you would just announce this big match is happening. And for a month, it would just be a build to one match. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then, you know, it's a, it's a different... Yeah, I, I, I liked it the way it was. I mean, I don't know. I like, uh, I like, um, like a lot of the new sort of thinking in wrestling. Like, a lot of it's really good, but I think... I don't know, like the idea of like um, somebody being in a pay-per-view, like I'm going to fight, let's say I'm going to fight uh, Kurt Henning this uh, tomorrow in a SummerSlam or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when me and Kurt Henning would wrestle, we wouldn't wrestle, we'd be off for six weeks or months, a couple, or be a fresh, like nobody's seen us wrestle at all for a long time. Right. And so it's, there's a lot of freshness to this one match. And of course you haven't, you don't got a lot of stuff down, you haven't, you're not wrestling each other every night. Like some of these guys like Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn, every time I turn on the TV, they're wrestling again mm-hmm. and again and again, and they'll be wrestling again next week because they need a great match. But uh, I think they, they they tire out the product where it's like, who can get sick of watching Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn wrestle? I mean, it happens. You get sick of good wrestling. Yeah. It's like every night, every time I turn on the TV, they're wrestling again. And that's the worst, right? When you yeah. When you find yourself getting sick of a great, great match. Wrestling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I kind of like the uh, the way it worked before where they kind of kept you away from each other until you had the match. And, uh, like, I notice sometimes now, like, they, they, they're doing, like, on Monday Night Raw, they're, they're, they're wrestling the same match that they're going to have on the pay-per-view. And mm-hmm. So I mean, they wonder why they're, they're, you know, the tickets for SummerSlam are not going so briskly as they like. Who do you, people have already seen it. Who do you like right now when you watch? Like, what wrestlers do you, do you I really like uh, the Canadian guys. I love Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn are both two of my favorites. I like, um, um, I mean, it's hard not to like Randy Orton, just for yeah. good, solid, steady. I, even John Cena. I love John Cena. I think he's one of the greatest wrestlers ever. I'm, I'm really a big fan of his work ethic. Um, his ability to work with younger guys and, 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 they have good matches. I watched him, I think, on Monday Night Raw or Nitro or, or not Nitro, but uh, I'm not sure if he's with SmackDown or not. Right, right, I watched right. him just last week, and he, I thought he had a great match. I admire him for always being a steady pro and always being a guy that goes in there and gives 100%. Uh, there's a lot of guys, you know, you don't have to be the greatest um, high spot guy to be a great wrestler. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, I think it's all, wrestling is all, it's a performance art and, right. and you want to have a different story or try to like when I wrestled Bam Bam Bingalow or if I wrestled Yokozuna, 
and even if I wrestle like the next day apart from each other, the next day it's going to be a completely different match. It's not going to be the same match I had with Yoko the night before. Right. It's just not. I don't. I don't do that. Uh, uh, to me, every match and every performer has a, is an artist, and a, and you got to cater to their needs. I would do my best to give Jim the Anvil a better match or better match than he ever had with anybody else or Bundy or whoever else I had to work with. Like it's, it's to me, it was a. I was important to give back to them and bring out the best that they have. And I, I one of my biggest sort of um, the things I, I appreciate the most about my career or make me makes me feel good is so many wrestlers that I know have told me years and years after my career that the best match that they ever had was with me and then they'll tell me where it was like you know it was in the pay-per-view with this or it was from Scott Hall to Kevin Nash to Bundy to, to Bam Bam Bigelow to they all you know Davey Boy and then there's guys that I did have so many great matches with you know but they they had their best moments in the ring with me. And uh, there's a lot of wrestlers that will tell you that their best, favorite match they ever had was with wrestling me. And, and that makes me feel good because I was never a greedy kind of, I wasn't a guy that ate up my opponents or, or it was all about me in the ring. It was about us and the story we're going to tell. Yeah. I mean, and I've, I've read your book, obviously, and I, I think it's the best wrestling <laughs> book that's, that's been released. And a lot of wrestling books have come out. But, I mean... Just because of the, the the detail and the full story that's in that book is incredible. Um, but one of the things that you talk about, and you've talked about it since then, is the match uh, with David Boy Smith at, and in Wembley at SummerSlam '92, and how you you know he blanked on everything, and you that was your match. You you brought him through the match. That's got to give you when you know that like I this is I did this match. This was me doing this. That's got to give you a tremendous boost of confidence when you realize that you guys did pull off a classic and it was one-sided and nobody realized it. I always thought that um, Wembley in particular, that day, when I pulled that match off, and uh, we pulled that match off, but like, and I, I know I, I did a lot of the work and did a lot of the thinking for that match. Right. All, all of the work and all the thinking in a lot of ways. But I knew... That's something which going to shake and something was going to change after that match. And um, I think it was about a month later, I was world champion. Yeah. And I always thought people, like, I remember when Davey took the Intercontinental belt, he thought it was like, step aside, old man, you know, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. be the star now. And, and uh, I was like, just wait, just be patient because this match made me, not you. Yeah. And it's true. And I think the Ironman match was another one. I wouldn't say it made me. But I held my own against Sean. Yes. Like that whole match was all about Sean. Right. It was supposed to make Sean the promos, the buildup, even the promos we did together in the ring. I remember he did some promo with Roddy Piper in the ring where I made some comparison to the Energizer Rabbit or whatever. But I remember that interview was all designed from Sean to sort of one-up me on everything I said. Sean was going to had a cuter comment or a funnier remark or to zing me on every... It was like Sean was getting the big push. And it's like, I didn't matter. I was just the guy holding the belt to give it to him. Yeah. And I saw that and it bothered me. That really bothered me. I didn't want to be like that. I didn't think it was right. I didn't think it was fair. I just think uh, my momentum and the, my sort of position in the business was still real hot. And really, I was really still carrying my end of things. And and so the Iron Man match, even though it was built around Sean, I remember when it was the way it worked and the way I walked back to the dressing room after it was over, I said, these people... They haven't forgot about me. Right. It's not just... So, 
was the crowning it, of a new king. It's like the old king's still here. And yeah, and that became pretty evident because that ended up, you walked away for a while, but that brought you into this whole, probably the most successful era of your career, first with, with the Austin stuff, which is just incredible, and then getting into the you know late 90s Heart Foundation, which is, I mean, amazing stuff. I think in 97, um, even 96, I was in my absolute prime. I, I would was, agree. It was As never, a fan. I was never better. I was uninjured. I, I had a couple of handful of injuries in my career. Everything was, I was like ready to go, ready to, 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 to make some serious um, changes, like, like not changes, but like to make a difference in the business and mm-hmm. to really have my, my all-time classic matches. Like I would like to have had, it's a shame that the screw job happened in, in so many ways, but I mean, especially from the fact that, that there was no more matches with Sean. Like, I never got to work with him again. I never got to work anymore with Steve Austin. I mean, can you imagine the matches I could have had with Rock when he was when he was finally over? Yeah. And, uh, and so many other guys. You know, I, I, I wish, even when I went to WCW, that I could have had some of those kind of matches with Benoit and some of those kind of guys. It's just a shame that um, things happened the way they did. But I, I 97, you know, I had so many great matches. Um it was such a such a strong year for me. I mean, I love when I think about the SummerSlam with Undertaker. Yeah, uh, I just watched that match this week. I hadn't seen it in four or five years. Yeah, what a great match! What a wonderful story! And you know, two wrestlers that had so much respect for each other and so much took so much pride in their work. I mean, I, I, I've always, uh, you know, I look back on '97 the matches I had with Steve Austin, the matches I had with. Um, even the the screw job itself was a really good match. It was the screw job, yeah. You know? And you know we had that was all planned. Like that way that match built was all planned, and then the bell starts. We still had another twenty five minute match. Well, that, that was all planned out that we never got to. The screw job ended. So it. you had about twenty minutes left in that match. Yeah. Wow. The whole match when I finally they started the bell is when it just was going to start. Now we're now the whole wrestling match starts. And right. It, and if you look at yeah, the because there's been a lot of brawling and stuff going on, on before and that, yeah, events and stuff like that. Yeah, it was great energy and great. It was great. It was like I was on my way to having a, this. All I cared about and always cared about was just this great, beautiful match. And we're telling this story. And I think if if the screw job had not been written into this whole thing without my knowing, but it, it would have been it would have been a classic. Yeah. It would have been the, maybe the best Shawn Michaels Bret Hart match that we uh, that we talk about. Right, and, and it's become memorable because of what it did and because of the story behind it, but not the match itself. And it could have that all got it never happened. Like it just it just got ended. Like it was like when they that that spot with the sharpshooter, with Shawn right. reversing it, was planned, and it was just a spot. And the like, to give you it was a pretty good spot, like mm-hmm. a big big momentum changer. But that was just in the first five minutes of the match. Yeah. Because we only started just a few, few minutes before that. But, I mean, the best stuff was still coming. All the real spots, the big turns that we scheduled in that match were on their way, but we never got to do them. Are you glad that Wrestling with Shadows exists? Because, I mean, you, you talk uh, about a, a, a documentation of what that year was and leading up to I mean, it's really sort of mind-boggling that there's that kind of record of that year and the screw job at the end, like it's crazy that that all lined and up. And that was a good a documentary. It was like, re- it's, I really, I mean, really well filmed and really uh, great. Tight. I I'm so grateful for it in the sense that um, even when I did it, and even if the screw job had never happened, 
it was just such a magical time in my life and my career. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, I knew when I did it, it's like, I want this to be a, like a capsule of yes. my career and something like about wrestling. I wanted to capture something that, that will never get back. Like if I hadn't filmed that, like you'd, it'd be hard to explain to people like yeah. what wrestling was like for me. Cause my era, you know, I, I was the king of the world of wrestling in 90, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97. Business had taken a bit of a slump after Hogan and the steroids and all the different scandals. And I kind of, I always make the comparison that I was the guy that pulled the sword out of the stone to kind right. of get things. I was never the biggest draw. I don't, I don't pretend that I was in, in, in WWF at the time. I wasn't like uh, Hogan where I was packing the place where there was... 25,000 people and 5,000 of them are outside the building trying to get in for a pay-per-view and stuff. Wrestling was red hot when Hogan was at the peak of his career in the 84, 85, 86. I got things when they were kind of going down, all the scandals, the, 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 they had a black eye wrestling and it was like, quick, what do we do? We stick the belt on a guy that's got no drug problems, no issues, never has a, never misses a show, never gets hurt. Here, you hold the ball because they were actually talking about Vince going to jail and having giving us our orders and our finishes and stuff from jail. He was still going to run wrestling from jail. They had all these contingency <laughs> plans, but I can remember thinking, like a mafia organization. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, you know, it's I took things on a tough at a tough time. Yeah, and I always thought, you know, I stopped the. There was nobody going down. It wasn't sinking anymore, and if you really look, it started to come back up. Mm-hmm. Started to come back all on my run. Yeah. I took it when it was going down. I mean, I had Sergeant Slaughter say to me one time, he goes, you saved wrestling. Really? Yes. <clears throat> it was a huge compliment. He explained to me the same way. That's how I kind of came to that idea. Like, yeah. You saved wrestling. Where would we be without you? Like, would have, wrestling was going straight down the shitter. There was nobody to stop it. And it was like wrestling was in big trouble. And you pulled it back and saved it. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. People talk about, like, when you talk about the Attitude Era and the Monday Night Wars and stuff, people talk about the WWE succeeding in, you know, 99 and 98 and 2000 when they really started to, you know, crush WCW and Austin and The Rock. But it's like when you go back and you really watch what was going on on that show, and whether you were in the room or not, I would say, like, 97, that era, 97 is the best year for the show. I agree. And I think that... I think that um, most most wrestlers would probably, if they take a look at it and study, like think about it, yes. they would agree. Storytelling and all that. And it's also funny about the Wrestling with Shadows documentary because you opened it up to your family and I picture your son as like a, a little kid. Like I see him today and he's like a man, but all I got in my head, same thing happened with Mick Foley's daughter and that Beyond the Mat. Like when I met Noel, I'm like, what? No, you're the little, you're the little kid jumping on the bed and playing wrestling and stuff like that. Well, I, you know, I'm, I've always been really grateful for like the, the wrestling with shadows you know there's one part if you ever watching that where he after the screw job where i'm on the airplane mm-hmm. and i'm flying back to calgary and i got a big cold sore i was all stressed out i got i got a big huge cold sore about the size of a quarter on my lip and i was so stressed out and so mad mm-hmm. i'm still really mad at that time like i was mad for a couple months but i remember that the producer the film director came up and he goes he goes and they're filming me while I'm sitting on the airplane, which kind of bugged me. And I was about ready to tell them to get the hell away from me for, give me a break for a few minutes. Cause they've been filming me for three days or something. 
But I just remember I was so pissed off. And he said, you, he goes, this is going to be great. We got the ending we were looking for. Yeah. Because this is going to, you're going to love it. We got everything. And I was remembering, I said, did you get, you didn't get the punch. And it's like, no, we didn't get the punch. I said, well, you didn't get anything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's no way you can tell this story. No one's going to know what happened. He goes, trust me, we got it. And man, that, that him, the limping out of your dressing room has become, that's wrestling folklore. Like that is a classic, like you didn't even need the punch because that, that shot from below where he's like limping out. I mean, every, that's the end. That's it. Like they did get it without getting it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I cleared them out, I remember I said, yeah, maybe I should get out of here. And and it was like, they were all like, really? We want to film? Like, <laughs> we like, wanna... Oh, get out. Or this is not time for documentary time. And it was like a minute later, I knocked them out. And it was like, and even that. Hang on, let me get you. Uh, uh, let me get you on over there uh, too. Go ahead. I remember when, like, I'm sitting in the. Room this is your son, by the way. From who we're talking about. <laughs> remember, Sean's like, I swear to fucking God. I'm sorry, I don't know how. No, go ahead. That, yeah, but I remember he's. I remember he's. I'm sitting right there. I'm probably seven years old. And I remember you, even you. You're like, you gotta probably take five outside. And even when Vince comes out, I'll stagger and I got the the foam finger. And I remember I'm doing the old Catholic <laughs> arm, letting him through. I could tell he's ready to kick that foam finger off my hand. But... Do you uh, uh, do you have like real memories of of all this stuff that we're talking about from '97 and being in the room? I was, and... I was pretty young, but right. I, like I remember a lot of stuff. Like, I remember my mom chewing out Hunter, like even just not even on the the documentary, but I remember standing there watching my mom chew a mouse. Like, right. I remember Kelly Rempel trying to kind of calm my mom down, but that was a hot. I, I remember the whole like the tension too. I remember they're asking me like, you know, what do you like? Do you know what's going on? Like I, would, I had no idea. I just remember I had to say goodbye to like the headbangers and stuff. And right. Sad about that. I was like, <laughs> what? Yeah. How old were you when you when you kind of figured out like what this whole story had been? Because I'm sure like obviously your dad brought it home and it wasn't this thing that just existed and you moved on. Well, remember, who was it that had that one match? Remember and they threw that punch and I went in the back and I was like, what was that? Oh, Scott Hall. <laughs> yeah, that was WCW. And yeah, um, that was, Blade came back after Scott Hall. We had, a, I brought him to one of my paper, or no, it wasn't a paper, it was just a match, Nitro, I think. And uh, might have been Thunder, actually, in Salt Lake City. And Scott Hall had some match where he threw a really lousy punch <laughs> for a finish or something. I remember he came back after, and Blade was just a little kid, came yeah. up and said, that punch was what kind of punch was that and everyone in the dress room just popped because it was like Scott was like you know sprays Ramon it's like walking in he didn't even know how to how do you answer a little kid that tells you your wrestling was the shit yeah. <laughs> well uh, uh, Brett the reason you're in town is because you're doing work with a pretty great company called House of Glory Wrestling uh, which anybody, you know, if you get the chance to get out there, it's an East Coast promotion, a lot of New York shows. You know, a lot of these promotions end up in Jersey and stuff. There's not that many good indie, indie wrestling shows that are happening in the boroughs of New York. Um, so House of Glory is a great promotion. I don't know if you've done work with them no, before. I'm just getting to know them, but they've been great with me, and uh, I'm really looking forward to I, You know, I always love coming to New York. I mean, you know, they always say it's the Mecca, but it is the Mecca, mm -hmm. and... Uh, so much of New York is a part of my rich history. Like my mom's from New York. She met my dad who, when he was down here in 1946, I think, or 47 or something like that when he started. But I mean, everything was all the connections that my dad had when he opened up Stampede Wrestling, including Vince's grandfather. They were mm -hmm. all connections that helped make Stampede Wrestling, which is a million miles from here, work. Uh, they are all connections from New York that my dad made. 
so New York's been a big part of my life and and wrestling and uh, you know even the the names like my dad would get big names. I remember meeting Bruno Sammartino in 1964 or something like that. He was just made champion and. You know, seeing him, meeting him, knowing him as a little kid, and and then seeing him on the magazines, and like just knowing that hey, Bruno Sammartino wrestled in Calgary. Yeah, you know, there was a lot of history and a lot of New York uh, in in the, my sort of understanding of the business. And I, I always welcome coming back here. I'm the greatest fans in the world. When did you regain your enthusiasm for wrestling? Because I mean, for obvious reasons, you were not enthusiastic about the business at all uh, for some time. Well, I think. WCW will kill any kind of joy in your life. Like, <laughs> like I think I started to hate money and everything. Like, uh, everything good is... Because you just bad. look at your paycheck and you're like, I know what, oh, what, made, what I had to do to... Ugh. Oh, he made 100000 this week, those bastards. <laughs> it's not right. worth it. <laughs> the money they paid me was insane. Like, for, And I'd fly all the way down. I'd be off and I'd fly down in first-class airplane, first-class uh, luxury car and first class hotel and all that and then have Eric Bischoff come up tell you about f- six five after six o'clock go up and tell you you're off tonight <laughs> it's like I flew all the way down here for what it's like, yeah. don't worry it, it's a day off your you know you had so many days you had to work and I was like oh, it's but it counts as one of your contracted counted, days counted as, yeah That's... so it was like but it was always like I didn't go there to dog it I right. came there to work I want to tear this place apart I want to give me let me wrestle let me give me something you yeah know? and it's like they they were so bad. They'd kill any hope in anybody. They'd destroy anybody. Wow. I don't have a good thing to say about Eric Bischoff or anything he ever did. That guy was, talk about the Midas touch. He was the opposite. <laughs> he could kill your career. He was too stupid to know what a career was or that, that actual passion. Yeah. Like <laughs> if you have passion for your matches and you have a, a genius for 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 wrestling talent didn't mean anything to Eric Bischoff. He, he was the worst loser maggot that ever got into wrestling. He was just the worst. I have nothing. He's a nice enough guy, but he was <laughs> he was just the worst. He was, I feel so bad because I went to WCW really wanting to make a difference. And I think if you look at WCW and all the names that they had and all the wrestlers and all the other things, they had everything. All they needed was somebody that knew what to do, like uh, someone with half a yeah, brain. and I would think that after what happened to you, you would want to go to WCW and shove it up Vince's ass, right? Right. That would you be know, the plan, and then yeah. you're not, you I've can't. I've seen Eric Bischoff. I've, I've heard his quote, which is probably why I get pretty hostile about Eric Bischoff, about Bret Hart came here. He was like a broken toy, or he didn't. That's what he didn't said. Have the same fire. Like I could strangle him when I hear him say that, because it's like that is so not true. I was like on fire, wanting to. I wanted to take the world on. I wanted to take that whole company. I wanted to kick Vince right in the teeth and give him like the best matches. I Booker T. Give me Benoit. Give me Sting. Give me Hogan. Give me all these guys. We can and we'll turn this thing. Let's get this thing really rocking here. Mm-hmm. And he was such an idiot. I mean, I have I would say all that right to him if he was sitting there. You, I believe you. You are an idiot, and you cost everybody. Like, look at wrestling today. It's a monopoly. Yeah. So the wrestlers themselves have no leverage. Of any kind. They can't, it's like, oh, if you don't pay me, I'm going to go to WCW like the old days. That kept every, that was so much better for the wrestlers because then we have a bargaining table. But uh, today, no. And that's all Eric Bischoff's fault. He killed the wrestling business. Wow. He was the worst. Well, I'll tell you, after this, all I want to do in life is get you and Eric Bischoff in the same room and do it on my show. (laughs) It wouldn't be fun. I I mean, I like Eric. Like, he was always nice to me. 
there's things that he did, like he flew me home after my brother Owen died. He f put me on a Learjet and flew me home and paid me all the whole summer and the whole winter of being off at a ridiculous wage. You know, he did a lot of good things like that. But at the same time, you know, he lied to me and just killed my career. Yeah. He's like, sign this contract and come join us and we're going to kill your career. That's well, what we're going to do. I mean, thank God that you were able to just tie a bow on it by coming back to WWE, doing the WrestleMania thing, doing the thing with like just just that there's some kind of at least some closure yeah, to I, it. I I spoke when I think about Sean, and I've said this a few times, but with you know after like when I came back and did that storyline with Sean, it was something what I remember. It's like I'll 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 make truce with Sean. We'll make peace. We can do it right in the ring. I remember telling Vince that, and it's like. Like really, and it's like you know, it was like yeah, I'll, I'll be happy, happy to shake his hand and talk to him and treat him. You know, I'll bury the hatchet with, him. and I think Vince was kind of shocked by that. I think it was a big step on my part. Yeah, but you know, and I always thought I said down when I went back, and I even before I met Sean the day of that that uh, Monday Night Raw in uh, Dayton, <clears throat> I remember thinking I'm going to probably look back about three or four months from now and be really sorry that I ever did any of this with him. That he's not going to change. That it's not going to mean anything to him. And and I was just, you know, I just kind of guessed that. And, you know, I was wrong, and I'm glad I was wrong. That's great. That's great Sean to hear. came back, and I think he, he I always say this about it, he, he appreciated that gesture so much. It was like, a, I think he was under so much guilt and shame and how, and what he did was something to be ashamed of. And it was, ashamed, you know, wrestling is all about trust and respect. And he didn't have the trust and respect for me in the first place back then. Which is how that how that whole storyline happened. The whole screw job is is a, based on a single conversation between me and Sean, maybe a month before um, the the screw job, mm -hmm. where I stopped him and said to him in San Jose, I said we're we're wrestling each other at Survivor Series in in three weeks or four weeks or something, and he said, yeah, I just found out today. And I said, I said I just want you to know, I have no problem doing anything you want. I said I know we've had our issues. I said, but if if I got to drop the belty, I have no problem with that. And I want you to know that if you're ever in the ring with me, you're always safe. I'm a total professional. I would never take, if I've got some kind of issue with you, I'll talk to you in, a different, in the dressing room or something. But I'll never take those things to the ring. That's a time when you have to be professional. And I, I said that to him, and I remember Sean looked at me, and this is where it all came from, is he looked at me and said, well, I appreciate that, but I just want you to know that I'm not willing to do the same thing for you. And when he said that, it was like, I just promised this guy. I just said I'd drop yeah. the belt to you, you, you know. So you tell me you stick it up my ass, kind of thing. That you and it's like, that's where all the problem was. Right. That's what the screw job wasn't about me being Canadian or being wasn't on the right day or the right. It was. It was all about a wrestler that that I offered to lose the title to. So you would have lost the title to somebody else that night in Montreal. Yeah, I even I I was told I'd lose the belt to Lombardi. Yeah, so Lombardi won the <laughs> Battle Royal. I was supposed to work with Brooklyn me in the Brother, garden. Yeah. I even said, I did swear to God, I said that, I said, I'll even drop the belt to Lombardi in the garden. I'll drop it to anybody. I'll even drop it to Sean after he loses to me. Just show me that he's going to lose. Gotcha. He, I will drop it to him tomorrow, but he's going to have to lose to me today. Show me that he's, I need that respect from him first. And, you know, they always say, oh, well, you can't end, it can't end a DQ or a forfeit. You know, I, where was it I watched on TV just a couple of days ago that they forfeited the belt and I was like watching it. I was like. That was such a taboo, supposedly. But Bret Hart wanted to forfeit the belt, like like it was unheard of, you uh -huh. know. But it's like, you know. Anyway, but well, it, man, it, in in closing, I'll just say, yeah. that Sean and I 
made a piece that was very real. And uh, I'm proud of that. I, I'm proud that I dug deep into my own sort of soul and said, I want to, I'll make peace with this guy, even though I wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do. And I can always say to people in life, in their own lives, you know, if you got something that's really eating away at you and kind of destroying you, dig it up and open it up and get it out of the way. You know, yeah. Make peace with it and say goodbye. Like, don't don't keep dragging around a lot of pain. And that's what I learned from that whole thing with Sean. And that was a good lesson to learn. Well, man, I really appreciate you coming in here and uh, taking some time to chat and, and bringing the family with you and bringing everybody. Uh, I would encourage everybody to go check out, you know, get online, look up House of Glory, find out uh, when they're going to be doing a show near you. If it's drivable, go check out the show. They're very... I mean, there's not a lot of uh, indie promotions left anymore that are professional and that have their stuff together and everything. And this is this is a group that does. So everybody check them out. And uh, Brett, is there anything is there anything you want to promote or anything beyond um, House of Glory? Blade, what about Sharpshooter Funding? Yeah, we got uh, we got a small funding company out of uh, Calgary, Canada. It's uh, going really well. We work for a guy out of the states called First Down Funding, and uh, you know, just check out the websites or Sharpshooterfunding.com. Yes, sir. Great. Cool. Well, thank you all for uh, popping by, man. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Here is Sam Roberts. Brett the Hitman Hart, the legend himself, here on the podcast this week. I think, I, I wonder sometimes, and that's what I really wondered after that conversation, is what has stopped WWE from using Bret Hart and uh, his mind for wrestling? And maybe, who knows? Maybe Bret's one of those guys that is kind of stuck in his ways, you know? Maybe Brett's one of those guys that doesn't work well with others because that's a key component to working inside a corporate structure in a company as big as WWE is that you have to be able to listen to other people's ideas, you have to you have to be malleable, and if your idea doesn't get used, you can't get upset about it. It has to be one of those things where you present an idea and you're not married to it. Your your job is to come up with ideas not to make sure that they get used. And some people can prosper in environments like that, and some people can't. I don't know, it's just a theory. That's the only thing that popped into my mind is that maybe Brett is just one of these guys who works better as an individual. I mean, you heard how seriously he takes his legacy, his career, the whole thing. So maybe maybe that's part of it. Maybe he's better off as, as a guy who is singly responsible for himself, and he doesn't seem upset about it. Although, I think he was a little hard on the Triple H-Brock Lesnar match. It wasn't like one of the classic Brock Lesnar matches, but you know, I don't think it was this giant piece of crap that needed Bret Hart's help. I would love to hear what Eric Bischoff thinks about all that. I did not realize that there was quite so much bitterness towards Bischoff, but hey, Bret Hart's got a, he's, if he's got an axe to grind, I'm not going to stop him. Any, any wrestler who wants to come on Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast and grind his axe be my guest, but, you know, you're speaking for yourself, not necessarily uh, for the opinions of those responsible for Sam Roberts' wrestling podcast, because I really uh, kind of like the Triple H Brock Lesnar match. I don't have a problem with it at all, and I certainly don't have enough of a problem with it that I would go back years later and kind of talk about it. That's a little weird, but regardless, uh, that was Bret Hart, and I really enjoyed having his son in studio as well and hearing his thoughts on what went on in Montreal and and kind of re not knowing what was going on. I love the idea that, you know, it's it's arguably, inarguably, I'll say, one of the most controversial things to ever happen in this world of wrestling. And probably the moment that WWE 
as a company changed forever. It was certainly the moment that Mr. McMahon, the character that drove the rivalry with Stone Cold Steve Austin that took WWE to this other place entirely, that was the moment that all that began. So the idea, and it was a man's life. For a long time, Bret Hart was kind of obsessed with this idea, and people people know this. You go back and you watch interviews with him from close to when it happened, right after it happened, whatever, and Bret's very, very upset about it. And he talks about it in his book, about how many years, years he was upset about it. And just angry at Vince McMahon and all this stuff. It wasn't an incident that happened at work, and he just let it go. This was his life. And it's just really interesting to hear... Blade's perspective, which is, I don't know, I was just wondering why I couldn't hang out with the headbangers anymore. <laughs> I mean, look, if I was a little kid, I'd love to hang out with the headbangers. When I was a little kid, I thought to myself, the headbangers are awesome. They wear white zombie t-shirts. I want to hang out with them. So I'd probably be bummed out about th- bummed out about that too. I also love the idea that he was running around in WCW too, like giving Scott Hall tips. <laughs> Speaking of minds like that, you wonder, you know... I, Who knows what it takes to be a producer, an agent, or whatever in WWE because there are a lot of brains. Like, Bret Hart obviously has a great brain for wrestling. And regardless of of what you think, or or, Bret Hart has a great brain for wrestling. Scott Hall has been on the podcast. Go back, yeah, it was probably two years ago at this point, but go back and find that episode if you don't believe me. He has an amazing brain for wrestling. And we all know X-Pac has a really great brain for wrestling. When I took to X-Pac about... WWE stuff, he always comes at me with this tiny little detail that I would have never thought of, and I don't read on the internet or anything. It's just little sort of insight that only somebody like that would have. Um, And as in good shape as he is right now, uh, I wonder why that hasn't happened, but I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Decisions get made for a lot of reasons. Hey, speaking of decisions getting made, it's time for me to make a decision about uh, last week's little contest. I said that uh, anybody that wanted copies of Second Nature, Charlotte Flair's book, it was by Charlotte and Ric Flair, I said I had a couple of giveaways, a couple of signed books, signed by Ric Flair and Charlotte, that two people, two listeners, would get if you left a great review on iTunes, and a lot of you responded. I really, really thank you for that. I got to come up with more prizes because, man, did that work. Tons of reviews over the last week, um, and I kind of I picked a couple at random, to tell you the truth. Um, so I, I'm sorry if you didn't win, uh, but I'll tell you in a second uh, where you can get a, a couple more signed books. Uh, the first winner... And if you won, uh, go to notsam.com and send me an email uh, via the contact page. You just type in the little form with your email address and uh, send me an email. Uh, it was by Andy Spee with a dollar sign. Andy, A-N-D-I-E, dollar sign P-I. The review is great podcast. There's a lot of wrestling podcasts out there done by fans, but this is the one, this is one of the good ones. Uh, some fan podcasts uh, are used as a platform to gripe, but not this one. Sam Roberts uses his platform as positive uh, insight on this beautiful art form we call wrestling. How poetic. Oh, yeah. He has predicted every major event to happen in the universe for the past few years. Well, I don't know if it's every major event, but thank you. You want a book, so send me an email at notsam.com. And rawdog 2000 R-A-W-W-D-O-G-G-2000. 
He writes, to be the man, you have to beat the man. When it comes to wrestling podcast, the last professional in podcasting, I guess that's right, the last professional broadcaster, brings his uh, youthful uh, love to pro wrestling. It says youthful need love, but I'm assuming he meant love to pro wrestling. Uh, while he works for WWE at pay-per-view, Sam still calls it the way he sees it. When an angle is misfiring, you'll hear him book the whole territory. When an angle hits, he'll get as giddy as a schoolgirl. With his occasional hype girl, Katie Linendahl, coming on to spice up the convo, there's something to appeal to everyone that's Raw Dog 2000. So the two of you guys, shoot me uh, an email, each of you, at notsam.com. Now, if you also want a copy of this signed book, I just got word. It looks like... I'm going to have a couple of signed books, Second Nature, signed by Ric Flair and Charlotte. And I'm going to be giving those books away on October 24th at the Highline Ballroom. As if Bully Ray as my guest at the Highline Ballroom wasn't enough, I'm also going to be giving away a couple of signed copies of Second Nature by Ric Flair and Charlotte. Uh, if you go to HighlineBallroom.com, you can buy tickets now. It's going to be a big, big event. Uh, I'm super excited to put it on. I got Bully Ray coming through for the whole show, including the meet and greet. I'll have those autographed books to give away, and I'm still packing it with surprises. I promise you this. It's not going to be a boring night. Go on YouTube, and you can check out any of my other live events. They do not disappoint. You'll regret not being there, especially if your buddy goes and he wins the signed book. Go to HighlineBallroom.com now and buy tickets for the show on October 24th. You could meet Bully Ray. You could meet me. You could witness some of the surprises in person. And you might even win a signed book. It's going to be very, very exciting. Uh, and you're going to need to rest up after a show that's as big as that show. And the best thing to rest on, I think, is probably a Casper mattress. The reason why these are so great to rest on is because a Casper mattress is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Supportive memory foams create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. If you don't love it, they're going to pick it up. They're going to refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit, especially considering that you're going to spend a third of your life on it. Shipping is free, and returns are free as well to the United States and Canada with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars. It's quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. Casper really does a great job with all their mattresses, and, and the price is unbelievable. Go, rest up, rest easy, do it with Casper Mattress, and I'm going to make the deal even sweeter. You can get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com Roberts and using offer code Roberts. Of course, terms and conditions apply, but get that $50 now toward any mattress purchase. They're already shockingly fair prices. Take that number Subtract $50 from it just for listening to this podcast. Go to casper.com slash Roberts and use the offer code Roberts right now. Get that mattress and have a great night's sleep. The only thing left to do is break down everything that's been going on in this world of sports entertainment 
I want to talk about Hell in a Cell and what we can expect from that pay-per-view. I want to talk about what's going on with Enzo. I want to talk about what's going on with the Shield and how this Shield reunion fits right in to the storyline that I was proposing last week. It really is unbelievable how I can call these things. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the segment that we call The State of Wrestling. It's now time for this week's State of Wrestling. Tell me the truth. Are you guys with me that I I really want the new Cesaro t-shirt? I I, I was just saying last week that I rarely buy, like, wrestling t-shirts anymore. But WWE Shop put out a a Thwith Thwith Thyborg t-shirt with just a big black and white photo of Cesaro's face with with his, his teeth knocked in from the corner post from No Mercy. Oh my God, is it a great t-shirt. Uh, I can't believe it. Well, uh, welcome to State of Wrestling. How interesting is it? After we talked about it, the WWE seems to be going full force with this idea of, of the different format of Monday Night Raw, which I think is the best way to do it. Some people think that it's because of Monday Night Football, that if you do the main event, quote-unquote, at the end of the second hour, then you're hitting right around halftime of the game, and so you're going to get people switching over. And that may be part of it, and that might be why they instituted the change in the fall. I really think that it has more to do with the flow of the show, that at the end of the day, you look at ratings, and you just pay attention to viewing habits, pay attention to your viewing habits. You are not going to tune into Raw late, right? We're, we're conditioned to not tune in late. If three hours feels long, we're not going to start at nine. We're starting at eight when the show starts because we don't want to miss anything. But after two hours of wrestling, that's when people start to kind of feel okay with missing something. If there's zero hours of wrestling, you're not going to feel okay missing anything. Because you'd like there to be way more than zero hours. But after two, some people are going to start saying, okay, you know, I think, I think that that's, I'm going to go to bed. I'm going to see if something else is on. I'm gonna, that's what happens. It's just inevitable. Those are viewing habits. We're in a YouTube generation. You can't hold people for three hours all the time. So I, I, here's why I like the idea of what's going on. And I've said it before and why I liked it from the beginning. That what you then have is a quicker setup right? You can set something up at the top of the show and get there in two hours. That's why SmackDown a lot of times feels quicker. But also, it takes that last segment. And number one, it gives more people a chance to shine. But number two, it adds a degree of uncertainty and unpredictability to that final segment. Because you don't have a final segment that doesn't matter. Just because it's not the main event. Just because it's not Roman Reigns and Brock Lesnar in the main event of Raw. Doesn't mean that the segment doesn't matter. They always end on a note that matters. They always end on a, I need to see what happens next week. That is still remaining intact with this plan. And if you'll notice, they are keeping that intact. And that's why Enzo's ended Raw two weeks in a row. And it's been good because then I find myself, and I think I'm like a lot of you guys, I find myself more interested in staying tuned to the end of the show because I go, okay, I've been watching Raw for whatever it is, 25 years. I kind of understand how it's going to go, right? And when we, the reason people are questioning it is because we've been conditioned to know 
when things get set up and when they get paid off on an episode of Raw. So when your big payoff kind of happens and you still got an hour of show left, I find myself going, I kind of want to see what else is going to happen on this show because they're not wasting the last hour. They're just not doing their main event setup in it. So I think it's great. And I think that the Enzo storyline that's going on right now is probably the best use that you could have for Enzo. And here's why. And I know that you guys are saying that's crazy. Some people think Enzo's being buried, and he's not being buried. You do not put a championship on a guy and put a guy in the final segment of Raw two weeks in a row and spend episodes of Raw building up to him and put videos on your YouTube channel of him to bury him, okay? Because even if some of the segments are exercises in humiliation for Enzo, you're building him into a bigger star. You're taking the final segment of Monday Night Raw and half of it is Enzo with a microphone. You're allowing Enzo to excel at what he's good at, which is talking on the mic. When Enzo went around from cruiserweight to cruiserweight to cruiserweight with an insult, an individual and specific insult for each of the cruiserweights, that's not a guy that's being buried. To bury Enzo would be to take the microphone away from him. To bury Enzo would be to put him in the middle of the show in a match that doesn't matter and have somebody squash him. To bury Enzo is to make people forget about him. What we're doing is we're making people remember him. And I think WWE is actually being very progressive about this Enzo storyline because they're taking the real the realness of it. They're taking this idea that we on the internet are sitting around going, there's heat on Enzo, and they're cashing in on it. And they're making us believe that what's going on, the reason that we're seeing that in the final segment of Raw is because the cruiserweights really do hate Enzo. And because Neville really does hate Enzo. And because Kurt Angle really is sick of Enzo in real, real life. Not in wrestling life. IRL. They're taking something that we're all talking about in real life behind the scenes and they're making it part of the show. Which is the best thing you can do in this era that we live in. Because we all know what's going on behind the scenes to some level. At least we all think we do. Everybody thinks that they know what's going on behind the scenes. That's why people like me can do podcasts. Because we can all read the internet and, and, and we've all been watching for long enough and we see the patterns and we use that to figure out what's going on. And then we say, well, this is why that's really happening. And WWE is using that notion and turning it into a storyline and leaving all of us actually falling into kayfabe, which is perfect. Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about the Enzo storyline thinking we're talking about the Enzo behind the scenes stuff, Right? I mean, you didn't see that coming. And Enzo is not a heel, by the way. This is the weirdest part about the whole thing. As long as you keep that microphone with Enzo, he'll never be a heel. Because you're not going to boo that guy who was going around insulting every cruiserweight. Because every insult was funny and clever. It was a great, he did a great job. And you've got Enzo, like a bad guy has to come forward and point out something, has to call Hulk Hogan a coward has to tell The New Day their act is tired, has to tell AJ Styles he's washed up, has to tell The Shield that they're yesterday's news. That's what a bad guy does because that's an opinion that's unpopular. Enzo is coming out and saying, I saved 205 Live. 
205 Live was a snooze before I got there. And guess what? A lot of people thought it was. A lot of people inherently agree with what Enzo says on Monday Night Raw. A lot of people agree with the idea that the reason Enzo is on 205 Live is because the show desperately needs an injection of personality and star power. That's why Kalisto is going to 205 Live, because we know Kalisto. There's been time spent building that character. So that's the problem. Well, it's not necessarily a problem. It's only a problem if you think that Enzo should be a, a bad guy. The problem is that what he's saying isn't necessarily not true. And that there is a a large portion of the audience that believes what he's saying. So actually what you're doing is you're building, you're building sympathy for Enzo. In my personal opinion, I think the WWE, whether it's on purpose or not, is building sympathy for Enzo slowly because You know, as much fun as it is to watch him get beat up, at some point, fans are going to turn around and say, like, what are you you beating him up for? He's right. What are you doing that to him for? Like, the Corey Graves stuff on Twitter, for example. And I love, nothing I love more than when Twitter life becomes wrestling life. Because that's when wrestling life and real life start to mix again. And you guys know how I feel about that. It's the best. Corey Graves tweets out a thing that says uh, uh, he was disappointed in his son because his son said his favorite wrestler was Enzo Amore. He said, uh, I failed as a father. And then Enzo tweeted him back and said, you didn't fail as a father, you failed as a wrestler, and that's why you're behind the mic. And some people thought that that was over the line. I read that. Some people thought that Enzo had crossed the line saying that because of the concussion issue. I love the idea that, like Enzo said, no, you're not a failure as a father. You're a failure as a wrestler. Like, to me, that's within the bounds of story. He's, if he had said, yep, you suck as a dad, it'd be like, whoa, Enzo, chill out, dude. But I don't mind that Enzo said that. And yes, it is personal because it's like, geez, you know, Graves wanted to keep wrestling. He had a concussion issue. That was kind of out of his control. And it was out of his control. But at the same time, as a, as a, as a wrestler who's in the ring, Enzo needs to not let commentators get the last word on him. If Corey Graves was on mic with Enzo, right, saying the stuff that he says about him on headset, then I would expect Enzo to verbally hit Corey back the same way he hit all the cruiserweights back. Because why would you let a commentator, regardless of who he is, regardless of his situation, one-up you? So I don't have a problem. I think I, I, I think the Enzo character, whether it's on Twitter or on Raw or on 205 Live or on pay-per-view, the Enzo character should be hitting Corey Graves back hard. Corey Graves being the character commentator, you know? And, and if, if Corey Graves is going to dip into TV world on his Twitter, then Enzo should respond by dipping into TV world on his Twitter and hit him back. Like, that. why wouldn't he? He's... He's a, he's a, he's a wrestler. Corey Graves is a commentator. Corey Graves is there to to report on what it is that Enzo's doing at the end of the day, or just provide some analysis on it. But you know, if if when we we talk about Bobby the Brain Heenan so much, when Bobby the Brain Heenan was was talking smack about superstars, eventually Bobby would get his comeuppance. We talk about that. We talk about that's why you know 
the the big cast Corey Graves thing was weird to me because Corey Graves isn't going to wrestle. The Miz Daniel Bryan thing was weird to me because Daniel Bryan's not going to wrestle. So if you know you're not going to get the guy in the ring, of course you got to say something back. So I don't I think that was well within the realm of of storyline for Enzo, but you know, I I I just think it's very uh very interesting. Like even if the WWE's intention is for Enzo to get booed, if this is an attempt to make him a bad guy, and that's a big if, it's not going to work because the whole the whole him being a villain is contingent on the fact that he's a bad person and deserves to get beat up a whole bunch. And the only thing that he's done that would make him deserving of getting beaten up a whole bunch is be a dick backstage in an environment where we as fans don't get to see. So no, none of us think that Enzo, theoretically, fans have not been conditioned to think that Enzo's antics are annoying because he's a good guy. He's been selling t-shirts. We've been finishing his catchphrases. His, his antics have not been annoying to fans. His his antics are over. Fans like his antics. So there's the people who like us, I guess, who read the internet where the internet says, well, this guy is not well-liked. And then we watch the thing going, okay, well, the reason that he's a villain now is because the internet told me that he's not well-liked backstage. But that's the internet telling you that. It doesn't work for the for the fully large audience, and it doesn't work unless we see him being this person who's displayed on the internet. This idea that, because otherwise it comes across as bullying. Otherwise, it comes across as like, oh, what's Corey Graves' problem with Enzo? Oh, what, why are all the cruiserweights beating up Enzo? Neville is a bad guy. Neville, we've been conditioned as fans to boo. He tells us to boo him. He tells us that he doesn't like us. So if all the cruiserweights are siding with Neville against Enzo, then they're the bad guys. They're the ones who are multi-person attacking a guy when he's down and agreeing with a guy that we've been conditioned to boo because he's a bad guy. So I don't, I, I think that this is going to be really interesting the way it works out. It's very meta because it's taking elements from, from real life and internet and stuff, but it's certainly thus far not portraying Enzo to be a bad guy. If anything, he's a good guy. And like I said, this is going to garner sympathy for Enzo. You'll see. You'll see. Kalisto, you know, he doesn't look great beating up the guy that everybody hates. This isn't like one of those Subway videos, right? Like, everybody loves the video of watching a whole bunch of guys beat up the bully. But the only satisfaction that you get, you know those videos that I'm talking about? When a bully, you see a bully, and then a whole bunch of people come and beat him up. And you feel good about watching that because the bully got what was coming to him. But the only reason that you feel good about that is because at the beginning of the video, you have to see the bully picking on a kid that's weaker than him. You have to see the bully pushing somebody around. Then the bully gets what he deserves. Otherwise, we're just watching some kid get beat up by a bunch of other kids and we feel bad for him. So even though Kalisto is very much beloved, he's also agreeing with Neville and all the cruiserweights that are beating up on Enzo. He is he is adding to this pack of people who don't like this guy. And a lot of people who watch wrestling are either going to high school or went to high school and were the guys 
that weren't well-liked in high school. And when you're not well-liked in high school, all of a sudden you turn around and everybody hates you. And you don't know why. Not Not because you're the bully, but just because everybody decides that you're the weirdo and we all hate you. And everybody gangs up against you. That's Those people are going to see themselves in Enzo. Why is everybody ganging up on this guy? Until he does something on camera that makes it deserving. And it does throw a monkey wrench into my equation, having Enzo uh, kick, uh, kick Neville in the dick to win the title and be underhanded about winning. But that's not enough. Enzo has spent too long building up too much support with the fan base. That's not enough to fully make him a bad guy. So we'll see. We'll see how this thing goes. It'll be interesting for sure. That's for sure, for sure. Um, I thought that the, the the stuff that's being done on Raw with The Shield and The Miz the Taraj is great. That is really, really good. And I'm hoping that this leads to where I kind of proposed that it should lead before it was going there last week. I think that this Roman story needs one more chapter before we get to WrestleMania and Brock Lesnar. I don't think Roman Reigns should win the Royal Rumble. What I think should happen is Seth and Dean, and it was really interesting, by the way, seeing Seth get fed to Braun Strowman. It really interesting that Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose were both sacrificed for Braun Strowman. But it works, and I'll tell you why. Because it is setting up this idea that they are stronger as a group in the Shield than they are as individuals. And at this moment, Long term, that's not what you want. But in this moment right now, you want that to be the prevailing idea. Um, and so, and it works because it makes Braun Strowman look like a million bucks. And that's a guy that you want looking like a million bucks regardless. I still think that his mega match is going to be with Samoa Joe soon. But regardless of who his big next match is with, that that is what you want for Braun. So I don't have a, I don't see it and have a big problem with it. I'm a little surprised by it. I just don't have I don't have I don't take issue. Um but what I think needs to happen here is I think the shield needs to come together. I think that this is great timing for the shield to come together. I think that it's a great use of the Miz because you don't need Roman to beat the Miz now. You can do it as a group. The shield can beat the Miz Tourage without the Miz losing his title and losing a lot of his steam. I think that this Miztourage thing and the timing works out perfectly with the Shield. I think we'll see the Shield together for TLC, which is the end of October. I think we'll see the Shield enter Survivor Series. I think, and that's November. I think come December, the Shield will start to deteriorate and the question will come up. Okay, if you've got October, November, and December with the Shield uh, reassessing themselves as the dominant faction in WWE. Now they're across the board good guys, right? All of them. So now the Shield has a conversation amongst themselves of who is the guy. That thing that Roman Reigns has been saying for months now. Who is the guy? They are the most dominant faction, sure. But who is the guy? I believe that at the Royal Rumble, Seth Rollins... Dean Ambrose and Roman Reigns should be involved in a triple threat. And I know there's already been a Shield triple threat match, but I think this one's going to mean a lot more because this one is going to be about, not about necessarily a rivalry, right? Because nobody's going to turn on anybody. I think an argument just needs to build of who's the guy of the Shield. We know these are the guys, 
But in the history of the Shield, there's never been, while the group's been together, there's never been one clear dominant member leader of the group. You'd say, well, Roman Reigns is the guy, but sure, but Seth Rollins, Dean Ambrose, and Roman Reigns are all now former WWE champions, and none of them have held the universal title, right? So you go, okay, so who's the guy? Roman Reigns on his way to this year's WrestleMania beat The Undertaker, maybe retired him. Beat Braun Strowman, but I don't know we're going to talk about that because we're trying to build Braun Strowman, so that might not get mentioned. Beat John Cena. I don't know if he retired him, but he definitely slowed him down. And now I think the last thing you do on the way to WrestleMania is you have Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose tip the hat and say, yep, Roman, it's all you. This one is yours. And and Roman wins that triple threat match. Seth and Dean are, are, are there saying, you know, this is your go. I think you have AJ Styles win the Royal Rumble because that's going to leave everybody happy. And then the next night on Raw, Kurt Angle says, well, since you were so dominant in that triple threat match and a Raw superstar didn't win the Royal Rumble, Roman Reigns, you get the shot. You're going to WrestleMania. Unless you want to, you know, throw the elimination match, uh, elimination chamber match to Raw. I don't know what you want to do with that. But I still think that the Royal Rumble should be about Seth Rollins and Dean Ambrose being beat and saying, hey, Roman, you're the guy. Now, this isn't me advocating that yeah, Roman Reigns should beat everybody and I'm a, the biggest Roman Reigns fan in the world. I'm not, not a Roman Reigns fan. But what I am s- saying is that we resign ourselves to the idea that this is the story. So what's the best way to tell this story? That's like saying, okay, how do we get to WrestleMania with Roman Reigns being the top dog? Well, I think that, that this is a great use of him for the fall reassess how great the shield is let other guys have some turns with stuff then the breakup for the shield is almost this respectful thing where Seth and Dean are acknowledging Roman Reigns as the guy and who knows maybe after Wrestlemania Seth and Dean are in the title hunt Finn Balor's in the title hunt Samoa Joe's in the title hunt Braun Strowman's in the title hunt you know what I mean there's all these people to be in the title hunt after that but I think that that to me is where this shield thing goes and if you don't think so feel free to reach out I'm interested. I feel bad for Mickey James a little bit. I feel like she escaped Piggy James, went to TNA, and then she comes back and she's old. Plus, then I read she's only like 38, which makes me feel like, oh boy, I'm not far. You know, it doesn't make me feel good about it. So let's get to Hell in a Cell, right? Now, on paper, this is kind of a one-match show. On paper, this is all about Shane McMahon and Kevin Owens. But I truly believe that the Usos in the New Day are going to steal this thing. The Hell in a Cell SmackDown Tag Team Championship match between the Usos and the New Day, I think, are going to steal the show. I don't know. Oh, before we get to SmackDown totally, I liked the Bray Wyatt uh, promo. I liked the effect they put on his face. I thought it was very, very creepy. Um, You know, there's all kinds of theories about what Sister Abigail is going to be. The latest theory is maybe Bray himself will be Sister Abigail. I don't mind it. I don't mind it at all. And I think it uh it it it, it goes with the kind of uh, gender identity trend that's happening in society right now. I think it reflects on that too. So I think that there's potential in that. I'm not I'm not averse to it. You know, I I I I'm, to me, I think the Wyatts are the best as a faction. So the last thing I want to do is see Bray Wyatt just be everybody himself, but I also could see a scenario where it works. So I think I think it it could be interesting. And we haven't seen anything like it before. Um, okay, so let's get to, to Hell in a Cell. Like I said, I think that it's a, it's a, on paper, 
a one-match show. But I think that this that there's a benefit to that. I think that No Mercy suffered from too much hype. And then people were disappointed. I think the fact that this is a one-match show means that people will not necessarily be expecting the greatest show in the world and they could have their minds blown a little bit. That's what I think the strategy is going in with the Usos and the New Day. I think that's how they're going to end up stealing the show because people aren't going to... Oh yeah, there is a second Hell in a Cell match. People's heads are too busy hurting at Kevin Owens saying on SmackDown that it was going to be a no a pinfalls count anywhere Hell in a Cell match. Why are you putting the cell down then? Pinfalls count anywhere Hell in a Cell match. Like, have we just given up on the idea that the Hell in a Cell is going to contain anyone? You know, it's weird because the New Day versus the Usos, the buildup hasn't been around the cell. It's just a bonus. And the fact that you're doing a pinfalls count anywhere Hell in a Cell match makes it seem like you're just admitting, like, okay, they're, they're, like this cell is not holding anybody. So we've given up on the idea of the cell itself having a purpose in this story for either match. The cell itself has no purpose other than it's cool to see Hell in a Cell matches. That said, I think they're both going to be great Hell in a Cell matches. So let's go over the whole show. Chad Gable and Shelton Benjamin versus the Hype Bros on the kickoff show. I think that's an easy one. Chad Gable and Shelton Benjamin win that match and the Hype Bros continue their story of uh, of leading towards breakup. Maybe they actually break up. Who knows? Bobby Roode versus Dolph Ziggler. Dolph is in a very interesting role right now. You know, I, I the story is different than the Nakamura story, but it does kind of feel like every time they bring a high-profile superstar to SmackDown, Dolph is that guy to be the first storyline loss. Um, I think that the the build-up to this match has been weird, you know, because I get what Dolph is saying in his promos, but I think some of the entrances have worked better than others. Um, but, you know, I think obviously Dolph is in a position now. He was in a position to make Nakamura look a certain way. Now he's going to be in that position to make Bobby Roode look a certain way. So uh, you would say Bobby Roode's going to win that match. Randy Orton versus Rusev, this is the moment to cash in on the build that you've given Randy Orton to me. There was a time when Rusev wasn't just funny. There was a time when Rusev said, you know, Rusev crush, and it wasn't like, oh, that's hilarious. It was, oh my God, he's driving a tank to WrestleMania to destroy John Cena, and there's this chance that he might actually win, which is not necessarily the Rusev that we see on SmackDown week to week, um, but I think he's a funny guy. So I this doesn't not work. I think that this works, but I think he has to beat Randy Orton. Uh, in order for it to work. So I would go with Rusev in that match, and that's what I want to happen. That's what I think should happen. I would have Rusev win the match. Um, and it doesn't even have to you doesn't even have to be clean. Like I think it's a great use of Aiden English to be Rusev's right hand man. You could have Aiden interfere. I'm fine with that. Rusev can enter into this other phase in his career where he's not he's kind of weaselly. He I'm I'm fine with him entering into that part of his career. But he's got to win matches. He's got to win matches. So he's got to beat Randy Orton to me uh, at Hell in a Cell this weekend. Uh, then you've got uh, your your title matches, your big matches. It starts with Baron Corbin and AJ Styles. Uh, I, I want to see AJ Styles in the WWE Championship match at WrestleMania. That said, we're still a long ways away from WrestleMania, so I would think that AJ Styles will come out of this with the United States Championship in tow. It does seem like the uh, the uh, Baron Corbin 
train has slowed down a little bit, so I would imagine that uh, AJ Styles will walk out of there with the championship. Um, Charlotte Flair versus Natalya, I think that's going to be an amazing match. People forget about their NXT match, but before there was a Charlotte-Sasha Banks feud, the Natalya-Charlotte match was the feud that cemented them. And if I know Natty, I think that she realizes that she's not going to have all the opportunity in the world to be the champion and be in the championship match. And I think that, I think Charlotte and Natty are going to look to steal the show. I think they're not, I think, I still think the New Day and the Usos are going to be the ones to actually do it. But I think Charlotte and Natty are going to attempt to steal the show. And I think they're going to have a great match. Uh, I think that Natty will probably win this match and maybe Charlotte will win at Survivor Series in a rematch. Um, because I, I I think that this is Charlotte's SmackDown build happening right now. Um, I, and I, but I, I think they'll give they'll give Natty one more month with the title and then uh, and then and then I think Charlotte will win it at Survivor Series. I could be wrong. I could see Charlotte winning it now, but uh, probably Survivor Series. Uh, then we get to the two Hell in a Cell matches first, the SmackDown Tag Team Championship match with the Usos and the New Day. Uh, I would imagine the New Day will retain the titles. Uh, I don't think that this is one of those things that can go back and forth. I don't like when titles go back and forth all the time. I think the Usos should retain. Um, and, and, I mean, I'm sorry, I think the New Day should retain. But like I said, I think that this is going to be a, a barn burner. This is going to be the one. Shane McMahon versus Kevin Owens. Um... I really think Kevin Owens should win this match. You know, I get that there's there's marketability in Shane McMahon, but Shane McMahon can afford to lose all of the matches. Like, Shane McMahon does sensational stunts, but I think that, that Kevin Owens needs to look like a big star coming out of this. You know, I think uh, coming out of this, Kevin Owens moves on to the main event, which is where I'm going. I think at Hell in a Cell, if I'm in charge of Hell in a Cell, Nakamura wins the WWE Championship at Hell in a Cell. I don't think the gender thing is is working, you know, unfortunately. I like gender. Uh, I thought it had potential to work. I think it's a little bit over. So, I think that what you do now, I, I think that you still keep gender as a fairly main event level bad guy because I think he's really good at it and I think the Singh brothers are an amazing addition to that package. I think the entrance is good. I think uh, what he's doing culturally is good. I think they took a huge misstep with the uh, Asian jokes, with the Nakamura stuff. I think that that kind of, it didn't add drama to the match as much as it turned people away from the story because it's just not the world that we live in anymore. Um, so, I mean, you know, I don't think that it's this great crime against humanity. I just think that that as a crowd, if you look at the crowd and where, you know, the, where that turned, I think that that's the moment where it was kind of like, oh, I don't, I don't like that that much. Eh, no, nah, that's not for me. So I think that uh, Nakamura should win the championship. And I don't think people see it coming. I don't think people assume that Nakamura will win. Uh, and that's the best time to do this. I would have Nakamura win the championship. Uh, and I would have Kevin Owens immediately start chasing Nakamura for that title. I think the, the match that leads us to the Royal Rumble is Nakamura versus Kevin Owens. That climax is maybe at the Royal Rumble, maybe right before, but that's that. the rest of the year should be about Kevin Owens versus Nakamura. Then at the Royal Rumble, AJ Styles should win the Royal Rumble, and we head into Nakamura versus AJ Styles at WrestleMania for the WWE Championship with Nakamura as champion. To me, 
there's all your money right there. It's a very simple layout, but I am hooked on SmackDown. If between now and then, it's Kevin Owens, if Nakamura is the champion, Kevin Owens versus Nakamura. By the way, Kevin Owens versus Nakamura and then AJ versus Nakamura. And what I would do with Jinder is I would have Jinder getting the United States Championship. I would and and you know hook or crook whatever you want to do. I would have Jinder at the next pay per view, maybe at Clash of the I don't know either at Survivor Series or at Clash of the Champions. I would have Jinder with chicanery beat AJ Styles for the United States Championship because then I think Jinder can come out and do the whole like you know you guys are a jingoistic country thing and hold the United States Championship almost holding the United States Championship hostage because then you're left in a position where you need to find a great patriot to come out and take the U.S. Championship back from gender. You've also then freed up AJ Styles and you build him back up because, look, I would say wait till December and do it at Clash of the Champions because then you're telling me, well, if gender beats AJ, then how does AJ move on to WrestleMania? Well... AJ, and this is why you you wait until Clash of the Champions. If you do it at Survivor Series, then you've got a solid two months before the Royal Rumble. And AJ needs to go into a lull after losing the title to Jinder. So AJ going into a lull, lulls can't be that long. When a guy goes into a lull and it takes forever, we lose faith in him. When a guy goes into a lull and it's rather quick, then we can kind of snap out of it. AJ needs to lose the championship to gender. Go on a bit of a lull, not an extreme thing, not lose every match, but just kind of almost be forgotten about for a month. Like, make the discussion not about AJ. Make the discussion about gender and his United States Championship. Make the discussion about Kevin Owens versus Nakamura. Make the discussion about Baron Corbin again. Raise him up. I have a lot of faith in Baron Corbin. I think he's awesome. You know, make the discussion about those guys. And then all of a sudden, AJ wins the Royal Rumble. Because once you win the Royal Rumble, you have erased what's happened to you before. You just beat 29 other superstars. So that's what I would do. That's the, that's the, that's the picture that I see of SmackDown that, that, that starts us now and takes us through Survivor Series into the Royal Rumble towards WrestleMania. Jinder versus AJ at Survivor Series. Then Jinder gets his rematch and beats AJ at uh, Clash of the Champions. Nakamura wins the title. Survivor Series is Kevin Owens versus Nakamura for the WWE Championship. You know, and I don't know if you continue that into uh, uh, Clash of the Champions. I don't know, you know, if you want to do two rematches at that show. But that just to me, and then finally this thing that was looming in the air that started at Money in the Bank gets paid off at WrestleMania when you've got Nakamura versus AJ Styles. Now, I may just be waxing poetic because I'm such an AJ Styles fan and I'm such a Nakamura fan. And it would be, by the way, super poetic. At that point, it will be what, like three, two and a half years? Two and a half years after Nakamura and AJ Styles leave New Japan at the same time, they're headlining WrestleMania for the WWE Championship. You don't love that? I mean, it wouldn't be phrased that way because 
This isn't New Japan. This is WWE. But just knowing that as fans, I think it's amazing. I think it's amazing. I don't know if it'll happen. You know, we may end up getting a Nakamura-AJ Styles match before WrestleMania. Survivor Series is a big show. You know, they're going to want to load up. We saw with SummerSlam. We saw with WrestleMania. We said, like, they, WWE wants to load up these, these, the big four. And so maybe they're going to want to pull the trigger on AJ versus Nakamura before WrestleMania. It's possible. It's possible. I hope not. Because this scenario that I have laid out in my head starts with Nakamura winning the title uh, at Hell in a Cell and starts with Kevin Owens beating Shane McMahon and ends with AJ Styles versus Nakamura for the WWE Championship. And I don't even know, I don't even care who wins at that point. You know, I'll tell you in March who wins that match. But it doesn't matter, does it? As long as we get there. I think it's very, very exciting. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm excited to see, uh, I'm just going over, uh, I think uh, we kind of hit everything I wanted to hit. I'm excited to see Kenny Omega hit the Ring of Honor ring again in the War of the Worlds tour, I have to imagine, I don't know that anything's been announced for the uh, final battle show this year in December, but I have to imagine that Kenny Omega is going to be a part of that too. And good on the Young Bucks. Good on the Young Bucks for turning a negative into a positive, huh? WWE apparently, according to uh, Pro Wrestling Sheet, I think was the website, WWE uh, sent a cease and desist letter to the Young Bucks saying they couldn't do the too sweet gesture anymore because they own that gesture. And they I guess they do because if you remember, they put the hand gesture on a t-shirt. They probably registered the trademark then. So what do the Young Bucks do? They put out a t-shirt where their hands are blurred out. It becomes the number one selling pro wrestling tees shirt of the month within a day. Incredible. Incredible. By the way, if you're at pro wrestling tees, don't forget to go to pro wrestling tees.com slash Sam Roberts, I think. If you go to notsam.com slash merch, it'll take you to the same page. Notsam.com slash merch. You can see my Pro Wrestling Tees store and get a little something for yourself. It's very, very good. Uh, Make sure you're wearing those t-shirts, by the way, to the big event October 24th at the Highline Ballroom. Go to highlineballroom.com for tickets. Oh, I'm very, very, uh, I'm very, very excited. It's going to be a big weekend. Make sure you're following me on Twitter and we uh, we can talk about everything. And until then, I will see you next week here on Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And subscribe for free to listen every week to Sam Roberts Wrestling Podcast.